Let us pray together. Spirit of living God, fall fresh now on these, your saints, who are gathered in this space and who are gathered around your country watching us via live stream. And, oh, God, I pray your spirit now on this preacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, about 25 years ago, I started writing a book on the book of Revelations, partly because I didn't understand it. And I wanted to, even after, after three years of seminary, I still did not understand the book. So I started studying it from scholars all over the world. I think one of these days I'm going to complete that book. But for now, I want to talk to you about the seven churches in Revelations. Seven, meaning complete, the whole. This is written to the entire church, not just to the churches that's named in the prophecy, but the entire church. The book of Revelations was dictated by Jesus and scribed by John on the Isle of Patmos. You will remember John was placed there for speaking truth to power. Not only did, was he placed there by the Roman government, but wanted and placed there by the leaders in the church because he was causing way too much havoc. It was on a day when the people was celebrating Lord Caesar's day, a day when patriotism and religion met. But John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we know that the Spirit guides and teaches and leads us in all truth. The book is a prophecy written in apocalyptic literature style of writing. <laughs> Prophecy, it predicts what's going to happen to the church. Apocalyptic language. It's a language style that's written mainly in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, some of the chapters of Isaiah, Zechariah, and others. Jesus quotes these books more than any other book in the Old Testament, a language that only believers would understand, thus written to the angel of the churches. Now, you, I think the angels of the church was pastors, not that pastors were holy, but so holy that they were elevated above others. But angels were messengers of God. We have angels today in this congregation that spread the love of God throughout the world and began to speak about God. So the church, was, the letter was written to the angels of every church. Patmos, major seaport, soldiers and visitors to Asia Minor would pass through there and from there would embark on another boat, maybe to get to Ephesus and be able to uh, travel about all of the known world at that time. People ventured there for every place under the sun, the Jews in diaspora would come back there. They would visit the places where the seven churches of Revelations were located. I believe, I believe that John would smuggle these writings that he scribed little by little to the churches 
in the hands of the folk that would pass through Patmos, that island, section at a time. He would get those writings out. And because they were written in an apocalyptic style, if they were intercepted by anyone, they wouldn't necessarily understand what was being said. They would think that they are the writings of a madman. At this time, the Jesus movement, thanks to Paul, is now an organized church. And like most new church start of our day, the seven churches of Revelations were planted in populous areas and areas where they were going to reach a diverse group of people and a lot of people, people with many cultural and theological pedagogies, people that came from everywhere and incorporated their beliefs and their understanding into the church. In this section of the prophecy, God is judging the church. He's saying it's time for a revival in the church. It's time for us to come back to where we belong because too many ways of the secular world has now entered into the church and the church needs to be cleansed from the inside out. So it will be able to stand up against what's coming. The church is about to face persecution and it needs to be at its strength, at its strongest in order to be able to, to withstand what is coming to the church. It's important to understand that this persecution is not coming from God. The church in all ages has been persecuted. The church in our time is being persecuted to some extent. And Jesus wants to warn the church, if you're going to withstand the persecution to come, you have got to have a revival led by the Spirit of God. Pergamon is warned about the Bellamite's teaching concerning idolatry. And the Thyatira is warned about its ways and how it has veered from where God wants it to be. The teachings of the false prophet Jezebel, who is misleading the church into idolatry and causing them to worship things other than God. Laodicea thinks it's rich, but it's actually a poor place God warns the church that the world is infiltrating on the church so much so that it's hard to tell the difference between the world's ideologies and the church's pedagogies. Smyrna, Philadelphia are both troubled by false Jews who slander them, who are saying they're anything but children of God. The world is infiltrating the church and when the world's ideas infiltrate the church, it makes us weak. The things that keeps us strong is beginning to erode in these churches from the inside out. And the first thing that happened and can happen to us is Ephesus lost its first love. The church is to love God and to love each other. It is perhaps our greatest weapon against the ill fates of, certain, of Satan in the world. We love God and we love each other. The greatest virtue in the world is love. Without love, we cannot have an abundant life. In actuality, friends, without love, we are nothing. 
Paul knew this. This is why he went before God and prayed that the Thessalonian church and its believers might grow in love more and more and more each day. Paul, my friends, knew that the model church is a church that has a strong love of God and a strong love of each other. Love is the necessary foundation for every single church that seeks to abound in the work of the Lord. The church at Ephesus was made weak because they lost the love of God and because they forgot to love each other. The church, my brothers and sisters, represents the completeness, the fullness, and the total strength and power of Christ. Each and every one of us are gifted individually by God with talents, with gifts that we may be able to transform the world by how we treat each other. And we can only love one another when we love God first. And it's that love that will enable us to work together to overcome the world. Let me illustrate this. Consider the redwood trees in California, my brothers and sisters. They amaze me. They are the largest living things on earth and the tallest trees in the world. Some of them are 300 feet high and over 2,500 years old. You would think that a tree so large must have a tremendous root system that travels deep and wide, hundreds of feet into the earth. But the opposite is true. The redwoods have a very shallow root system. The secret to their strength lies in the fact that the, the redwood trees grows in groves and their roots are intertwined together. And when the storms come, the winds blow, and the lightning flashes, the redwood stands firm because they are locked together and the trees support one another. None of them stand alone. Each tree is of equal importance to all the other redwood trees. They face their storms together. And that is the model for the church. As believers, we are just like the redwood trees. Every believer in the church is interwined together. Whether they are at home sick and we go to visit them, a lot of people think that it's the pastor's job to visit, but I have been visiting people for nearly 40 years. You know when they get excited? Not when the pastors come, when you come. Because when you come, they know you love them. When I come, they think I get paid to come. <laughs> Every believer has a calling on their life and a duty, and a duty to use their gifts for our Lord and Savior. So loving God and loving each other, it's a critical part of being a church and a critical part of overcoming the world. Smyrna represents the second great threat to the church. Without the church caring for each other individually, we can lose faith. 
if it wasn't for all the cards and letters that I received from you guys the six weeks while I was sitting in that recliner waiting to heal, you began to wonder, does God still love me? Do people still care? Have I made any difference in their lives? I guarantee you, somebody at home right now who or somebody that's in a skilled care facility is wondering right now, why am I in this condition? And they're in danger of losing their faith. We're living in a time when faithfulness is not high on the agenda of a lot of people's lives. If we were to ask leaders of any church, if we were to ask leaders of health clubs, bank president, card, credit card companies, attorneys, and others, they will tell you faithful people are a rare breed. Some people are only faithful when they feel like it's beneficial to them. Some people are only faithful when they are getting recognition and they're gaining popularity. Some people are only faithful when their friends are around and they're trying to make inroads. Some people are only faithful when money and power is the motive. Some people are only faithful as long as things are going their way. And the moment things are not going the way they think they should, faithfulness goes out the window. Faithfulness is a rare category because most people don't know how to pinpoint what faithfulness is. If I were to ask each person under the sound of my voice, both in this room and online, what faithfulness is, I believe I would hear different answers from different people, especially in the service of the Lord. Some of us don't know or don't understand what it means to be faithful. Some people are faithful on first Sundays because communion is what we live for. Some people are faithful when Gretchen is playing beautiful music like she was this morning. Some people are faithful when their favorite preacher is preaching. Some people are faithful when it's Youth Recognition Sunday and they come to see the grandkids and their kids. Some people are faithful when there is no conflict in the United Methodist denomination and in Calvary Church. The Smyrna Church reminds us of what a definition of faithfulness is. Faithfulness is not seasonal. It's not dependent on our mood. It's not associated with our status. No biblically faithfulness is a sense of duty, a sense of obligation to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in season and out of season, in the office, in our office or out of the office. It is not a time, a one-time shot. It is a continuous action. And in this pericope, the Apostle John is serving as described for our text. John is incarcerated on a remote, barren island. No matter how bad it looked on Patmos, John was in the spirit on Caesar's day. The Lord visited him and told him to write these things down, showing him and addressing all the churches that were in Asia, Asia Minor. Seven churches, seven letters addressed to seven 
pastors with seven situations going on in their church. And my brothers and sisters, these same seven situations are going on in the church in the 21st century. Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church, to the messenger, the pastor at the church at Smyrna. He ends by saying, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. So the question is, what if I'm going to be faithful? How does God know about my faithfulness? And when you look at the letter, God knows who we are. Look at, look at it. Jesus looks at this local church. But remember, the church is not a collective, a collective of brick, bricks and mortar. The church is made up of people. This beautiful building is not normal Calvary Church. This is the place where normal Calvary United Methodist Church gathers the soul and spirit of the people. That's the church. This building will decay, fall apart, and time will destroy it. But the structure is not normal Calvary United Methodist Church. The people make up the church. Jesus said, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. God knows the leaders in our church. God knows the congregants in our church. God knows the people in our communities, at our places of employment. But when God looks at us, God does not look at our titles. God is not, God is looking at our souls. When we look at, we look at the outward appearance, but my friends, God looks at the heart. God doesn't judge the sinful nation of what we do on the outside. But God looks at the inside. The church didn't have one in three locations in Smyrna. Smyrna wasn't a big church. It wasn't a rich church. They had very little money. They were not rich. They were, as the Greek language says, plusias. Plusias has nothing to do with earthly possessions, but has everything to do with being rich spiritually, not having earthly possessions, but guaranteed eternal possessions. Friends, we are striving for spiritual riches. We may not win the lottery, but we can have spiritual riches. We may not be able to keep up with the Joneses, but we have to know that we know that we know that this house, this earthly temple will soon pass away. And we're all preparing for a new home, a new suit, some new slippers, not on this side, but on the other side that Christ has promised us. We followers of Christ cannot settle for chasing after earthly power and riches. We know that's not going to last at all. Some of the very cars that we're driving now will be obsolete next year. You know they're talking about making a car that is solar guided by next year, that it won't need charging for seven months. It won't need gas. Some of the things that we value now, our clothing style, will be out of style next year. My wife is making me take her shopping 
for her birthday to buy new stuff. And I'm, what's wrong with the stuff that's in the closet? <laughs> Some of our relationships won't be happening this time next year. But Christ Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. Christ will last. He was here before we got here. He's here now. And he'll be here when all of us are on the other side into eternity. That's why Raymond Raspberry wrote, you may build great cathedrals, large and small. You can build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of the path, but only what you do for Christ will last. Second thing, God knows what we're in for. Jesus tells this pastor and church that even though you're committed to standing tall and standing firm, this is not going to be an easy road. Friends, how many of you know being a Christian is not easy? We charted the church in East St. Louis with 125 teenagers. We told them that you have just joined the toughest gang in town. Look at what the Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for days. It's tough being the church in a world that values being correct rather than loving God's people. There are some folk that think that being a believer means being pain-free and there will be no conflict in the church whatsoever. The truth of the matter is that pain and Christianity walk together hand in hand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die, die to self and live for Christ. Being a believer means that you will have to cry sometimes. Being a believer means that you will have trouble in your life sometimes. Being a believer means you'll be misunderstood. It means that some people will tell half the truth about you. It means that you will be talked about. There will be some bad days. There's not a Christian leader or a Christian saint that do not understand that bad days will come. But when bad days come, we can't run. We don't leave our church, but we stay there and we ride it out because we understand that being a believer is cyclical. We have our ups. We have our down days. We have our great days. We have our sad days. We have days of plenty and days of want. The problem is that some of us quit and run at the first sign of conflict and trouble. God blesses us, friends. But there will be days, even in our blessedness, that we will have some difficult days. Days when we turn on the TV and find out that in one of the safest communities in Illinois, children lay under their parents who've been gunned down. Days that made us want to lose our minds up and here, up and here, up and here. But we have to Write it out and understand that we, God may not come when we want God to come, but God is always on time. We have to understand that God is 
with us, even in a world where people are gunned down for no reason whatsoever. We have to understand that God is with us even when we don't understand why God allows bad things to happen. We have to believe and faithfully know that every step of our lives, God makes that step with us. Jesus' Jesus' final word to the church at Smyrna, or applicable to Smyrna, but also right for us today. Jesus says, be faithful. In the original language, be faithful. It's not expressed as a one-time experience. It is a long, continuous action. Being faithful is faithful until death. Faithful is not a one-hour experience. Faithful is not a two-day experience. Faithful is not a one-month experience. Faith is not a hundred-day fasting experience. No, faithful is a continuous action. We must be faithful when we're sick and no one comes to see us. We must be faithful when we can't move like we used to. The problem is that some of us give up and give out. We may not be able to walk like we used to walk. There are some things that I cannot do anymore. The elders in my generation would say, if I couldn't say a thing, I'd wave my hand to let people know that God is still good. Faithfulness is a continuous action, and it has a cutoff point. There will come a time when we will not have to be faithful anymore. We are called to be faithful unto death. Death is the dividing point that separates us from one side to the other side. I'm living in the land of dying, but I'm on my way to the land of living. In order to go to that other land, death has to occur. The good news here is that when death comes, Jesus takes over. Jesus made the promise, just be faithful unto death. And when death comes, I will take over. I got it from there. I will give you a crown of life. There is a crown of life prepared for every single believer. There is a crown of life which people can't give and people can't take away. There is a crown, Brother Curry, that your loved one is wearing right now. There is a crown of life that will not It will not discolor. It will not dissolve. God will be there in the end if we make it to being faithful unto death. God will take it from there. The question being now, though, my brothers and sisters, this week, Ask yourself, how can a person in poverty be rich? This week, ask yourself, how can I show faithfulness to Christ, to someone who may be losing their faith, 
who may be going through unimaginable things that challenges who they are. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who promises not only to be with us on this side, but also promises that when the day of death comes, he will be there. He will take over from there and guide us to that promised land. Oh, God, we thank you for these on this side, though, who have decided that they're going to love you and they're going to love each other, who have decided that no matter what happens in our lives, we will remain faithful as long as there's breath in our bodies. Oh, God, thank you for this church we call Calvary. We know that the church is not this great building, but our church now is in Erie, Pennsylvania, representing you and representing all of us. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.